Welcome to what we intend to be the evening worship for Pearl Presbyterian Church. Again, this is not a worship service. There's no way for us to replicate uh, true corporate worship uh, in the circumstances that we are in. And yet, at the same time, we feel like it's really important for families to not only gather together on Sunday mornings, but to also gather on Sunday evenings. And so that's why this second service is now being provided uh, by the church here at Pearl Presbyterian Church. And we are grateful to be able to minister the Word of God, whatever the circumstances, however strange they might be. One of the things we want to begin doing with this evening message is to also include at the beginning an opportunity for me to pray for us, to pray for our church. And so before we begin, I'm going to offer pastoral prayer, and then I will begin our sermon this evening from 1 Samuel. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Who is a God like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who on the earth can even compare to you, O Lord? Who among the creatures in heaven is equal to you? O Lord God Almighty, who is a mighty God like you? Who can be compared to you in your faithfulness that encompasses all that you do? There is no one like you. No one can do any works like your works, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. There is no creature that has an arm like yours or that can thunder with a voice like yours, Lord. And yet we know that we ought to hear your thunder. We ought to hear your judgment. For you know that we're guilty. You know that we're born in a fallen, sinful nature. And we really are quite content to continue in that same condition apart from your grace. Nothing good is inherent in our flesh. If to will the good is sometimes present with us, we cannot find the wherewithal to actually carry it out. The good which we would do, we do not do. But the evil that we would not do, that is exactly what we end up doing, Lord. You know our hearts, O oh God. And we ask you for the sake of Jesus Christ that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We give you thanks, O God, that you haven't given us over to a depraved mind and that our consciences aren't seared. We thank you that you haven't pronounced your judgment over us by leaving us to ourselves to fall apart in our sin. Instead, you've given us your law written on our hearts, and you've given us consciences to know when we go against your word. You are good, O oh Lord. You are kind to men and women, boys and girls, the world over, O oh Lord. While on earth, O oh God, you and your Son demonstrated that all of us should show concern for the sick by bringing them to you. There are many in our land who are sick right now, Lord. Help us. If we are not ourselves sick, Help us to be steadfast in bringing the sick before you 
in faith because you promise that, that the prayer of faith will save the sick and you'll raise them up. So we pray for those who are sick. You love those whose bodies are ravaged by disease and illness and even old age. And we know that you can answer these prayers. You are, you are like the master who can command and speak to the illness and say, go, and the illness goes. You are sovereign even over illness, even over sickness. And so we pray for relief. We pray for those in affliction. We pray for those who are homebound in their struggles. For the members of our church who are desperate in their loneliness. Lord, would you bless them? Would you care for them? Would you let them know that your people love them, that you love them? Give them relief for their bodies and healing for their souls through your word, through the promises of your Son, through your scriptures, Lord. Would you help them to submit to your yoke even when it is truly hard to bear? Help us now tonight, Lord. Help us to please you. Trusting in your name as we turn again to hear from your word just as we did this morning. May it be a joyful noise, noise in your ear, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> our text tonight for it comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, the last time we were in 1 Samuel was several weeks ago, and in that passage, we witnessed God's rejection of Saul stated for the second time. For the second time, God told Saul that he was rejected, that God had torn the kingdom away, that he was giving the kingdom to someone else. And if you'll remember last week, or at least the last time we looked at this passage, the ending of the passage was the death of Agag. As Samuel comes with Saul, meets Agag, and hacks this man who came out very cheerfully, and he hacks him into pieces. And so Israel found peace at the destruction and death of their enemy. And so as our passage opens tonight, Samuel is really in mourning over the fall of Saul, um, and God intends to interrupt his time of mourning with a word of good news. So let's read that good news from God's word tonight, beginning in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
<clears throat> but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for that is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this very evening. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you, together with your Son, send your Spirit to show us our need and to show us Christ's provision tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For several chapters as we've worked our way through 1 Samuel together, I think we found ourselves looking forward to this moment. Uh, this moment when we would meet the man that God has to take Saul's place. He is a man that we have heard spoken of. And of course, it's something uh, meeting this man is something that Saul himself has been dreading. Uh, and Saul no has known that this moment is coming for several chapters now. We saw back in chapter 13. You may remember how Saul took it upon himself to perform the sacrifice instead of waiting because the Philistine army was closing in and he was afraid and he was concerned that Samuel wouldn't keep his side of the bargain, that he was supposed to come to offer the sacrifices. And so he took it upon himself. And of course, when that happened, God specifically said to Saul, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And you'll perhaps remember, that was chapter 13, and then you'll remember again, two chapters later in chapter 15, how Saul spared Agag, even though he was not supposed to spare Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And once again, what did God do? He rejected Saul. He said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so that's two mentions now of this nameless man who's going to be taking Saul's place. And tonight we meet this person who is a man after God's own heart. We meet this person who is Saul's better neighbor. But the path to David and the path to David going onto the throne is, is winding. 
It's interesting. Because you see, before Samuel can get to David, first he has to get to David. And that will involve us seeing real weakness and real frailty in Samuel. It means seeing that Samuel isn't this steel pillar of perfect faith that perhaps we imagine all of the Old Testament prophets were. Instead, we find out that Samuel has feet of clay, just like the rest of us. But even as we see this, we are also brought back around to God. Because God is being faithful to Samuel even in his weakness. And Samuel's weakness is a picture of Israel's weakness. And all the way, God is there, and he's watching, and he's caring, and he is especially providing. He's taking care all the way. And so you see, as interesting as Samuel is, as interesting as Saul is, as interesting as David is in this passage tonight, this is a passage that's about God. What is it that we see about God? We see the patience of God. We see the vision of God. And we see the freedom of God. The patience of God, the vision of God, the freedom of God. Let's know our God better tonight. Let's look closely at how he deals with these weak people to provide for them exactly what it is that they need. At first tonight, we notice the patience of God. You know, up until this point in the book, almost all of God's prophetic activity has been focused on Saul, and it's been focused on Israel uh, but for the first time, really, God turns his attention to Samuel himself. He, he is concerned now with the state of Samuel's own heart. And so he begins by asking Samuel this, very, this question that's meant to prompt self-reflection. It's not because God is asking for actual information. He wants Samuel to think upon the state of his own heart at this moment in history. What does he say? He says, "'How long will you grieve over Saul?' since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Now, at first glance, that doesn't sound very patient. It actually is patient of God. Think about what God is doing. The almighty, sovereign God of the universe has declared that he has rejected Saul from being king. And then what is happening here? Samuel is sad about this. Samuel is in mourning because he doesn't like the outcome of the will of God. Now, if I may be very blunt, you know, if I'm talking to someone in a church and that person is hurting and that person is having trouble believing the promises of God, I'm not going to be this blunt. But I'm going to be this blunt about Samuel because he is in the grave and actually he's sanctified now and he's going to be okay with what I'm about to say. But here's what I want to say about Samuel. Samuel's sadness may be understandable from a human perspective. We might really resonate with somebody who has put this much time into a leader like Saul and to only see him rejected like this. That's sad. It is understandable, but that does not make it right. As Christians, 
We should rejoice in God's will. We should rejoice in seeing his will revealed. But Samuel seems to weep over God's will instead. And, and God calls him on it in this moment. He says, this is my will. I have made my decision. Are you really going to continue to question that? Is there going to be friction between you and me? Or are you going to get with the divine program, Samuel? See, God doesn't pause for long. See, he's, he gives Samuel a mission. He causes him to reflect on this. He lets him know where he needs to be. He puts him in his place. And then he sends Samuel on a mission. And the mission he sends him on is, you're going to go to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem, and you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. Now here's where we start to see the patience of God much more clearly, right? Samuel speaks to God these, these words of fear, spelling out what God already knows. What does Samuel say? He basically says, Saul's going to freak out when he hears that I'm going to see uh, Jesse's family, right? I, I just told him twice that you rejected him, and I told him twice that there's going to be somebody else that's about to be made king instead, and now he's going to be crazy suspicious. He's going to be so suspicious when I go to see Jesse's family. How can I go? I'm, I, I'm not even going to make it to Jesse's family. I'm going to be dead before I get there. You hear the fear of Samuel. Samuel's fearful, right? Because he knows what we know. He knows that Saul is paranoid and dangerous. He's an unpredictable leader. You don't know what he's going to do. One thing you do know, the man lacks virtue. He lacks patience. He lacks wisdom. This isn't going to go well, Lord. And so because Samuel knows this about Saul... God is telling, he's telling God, I know I'm going to be scrutinized as I go to Jesse's home in Bethlehem. See, see, Samuel is the kingmaker of Israel. And so, of course, Saul is going to be very interested in where he's going, why he's going, and what he's going to do when he gets there. And his suspicion would be very well founded. Saul's, uh, he, he's crazy, and he's sinful, but he's also not stupid. All right, we already saw for the second time now, God has definitively been speaking of Saul's rejection. So he knows there is a man after God's own heart out there who is a threat to him. And Saul knows that his better neighbor is out there. And, and, and it does make him paranoid. And it does, as we'll see later, lead to him being very unhinged as a leader. He's so unpredictable. Here's the problem. Samuel knows what God has called him to do, but it seems that he doesn't trust God to get him there. There's a gulf between Samuel's knowledge and his faith, and that gulf is where fear comes from, right? There is a gap between what we know and what we are called to do and what we trust God to do. And that is fear. That's where fear comes from. There's a gulf between our knowledge and our faith. And if our faith is greater, then the knowledge decreases. The faith fills in the gap of what we know. Now we understand Samuel's fear, but 
That doesn't make it right. By the way, don't you find it comforting when we see really holy people in Scripture show their humanity? They show that they're, that they're human. They show that they're weak. You, you see the sins of the people in Scripture. That's one of the things that I love about the Bible, is you read the book, and there's only one person in the entire book that comes out stainless. And that's Jesus. Everybody else in the Scripture is the way that I usually feel about myself most weeks when I know myself best. And that's Samuel in this passage, right? We understand his fear, but that doesn't make it right. Now, at this point, God could simply go, hey, Samuel, I made man's mouth. I made man's eyes. I made man's ears. I'm the one that helps people think. I'm the one that helps people see and speak and hear. So just trust me. And he could have just called for raw faith. And he could have willed these things to happen, and, and that could have happened. God could have done that. God is capable of anything. But instead, what does God do? He actually accommodates Samuel, right? He gives him, how does he accommodate him? He gives him a legitimate task to do so that he can go with some type of cover. All right? He says, uh, you're going to give sacrifices, and what God does when he tells him to go and do these sacrifices is God is doing something really remarkable. On the one hand, he's helping Samuel conceal his real purpose. And on the other hand, he's protecting Samuel from actually lying. Right? Now, the whole premise of Samuel's question to God, Samuel's dilemma that he sets before the Lord, is that he can't lie. Right? That's not an option. Because if lying was an option, Samuel wouldn't have had to ask God what to do about this, right? Because Samuel could have just cooked up a lie. He could have cooked up an incredible lie, uh, something very believable but not true, and just told Saul about that. But Samuel knows that lying is not the right solution to this. And so if Samuel can't lie, then what can he do, right? He needs a true answer when Saul asks what he's up to, right? And so what God does here is this is incredibly gracious of God. Saul is going to have enough information from Samuel that he won't dig any deeper, and he'll let Samuel go without any trouble. Um, that's God's solution. I'm going to give you something that is true, that you can tell Saul, and it is absolutely factual. Now, this is something that many Christians disagree on. You see a lot of, of debates among ethicists over whether or not there's a such thing as a noble lie. And a lot of times when people are answering that question, and I'm not going to get into that because it's outside the purview of this text, in my opinion. This text is one that a lot of people appeal to to say, actually, God is okay with lying in some limited circumstances. See, Saul lies here, and he does it at God's direction. But the whole point of this is that this is not a lie. The whole point of this is that um, God, un Samuel understands that he is bound to tell the truth. If the king of Israel asks him what he is doing, he may, may, must be able to give him a true answer. And that's exactly what God does here. 
So God in his providence also knows that Saul is not going to press beyond the surface level answer here. And so his plan is sufficient. The, the plan that God gives to Samuel is sufficient, but it's not so thought through that it doesn't demonstrate faith. It takes faith to go and give this sacrifice. Because if, if Saul asks any other questions, Samuel's bound to give him the complete answer. What is God doing? He's being patient, and he's being kind. Right? He's being gentle towards Samuel. He's giving Samuel a way to get to the new king without Saul knowing that he's getting to the new king. He's really giving us a picture of the loving kindness that he shows to Samuel and that he shows to you and me all the time. My wife and I have just had these seasons, these times where we just marveled at the sort of things that, that God has spared us of, right? We have seen friends go through awful experiences, health problems, infertility, stressful life situations, and and the two of us, relative to those things, and relative to our friends and our, our family, and the sort of health concerns that we've seen people go through, we are constantly marveling that the Lord has spared us of those things so far. He has been kind to us when he didn't have to be. God is gracious to us when he doesn't owe it to us. And yes, these are superficial things. Yes, these are worldly things. Health is something that is a gift when we have it. And at the same time, we are living in a moment right now where many people don't have health and many people are in threat of having health problems. We probably don't marvel enough, though. We probably don't think enough about all the things that could be coming into our lives that haven't so far, that God has spared us from. He hasn't spared us from all suffering. Every single person in our church, uh, even myself, we have all suffered. What has God been sparing you from? Ever consider all of the kindness that God shows you? And he could choose to do things very differently. That's what he does here for Samuel. Right? He spared you of much suffering because he's a merciful God. Calvin reminds us that God accommodates himself to us. He, he, he bends down to, to deal with us in our weakness. The, the illustration Calvin uses is he said God lisps to us. He lisps to us. He accommodates himself. The, the way that a parent speaking to a child with a speech impediment might speak with that same speech impediment so that, so that we could still know that our Father is there with us. He stoops to our level and he shows us kindness like a loving Father. Fatherly gentleness. God is being merciful to Samuel here. He's lisping to Samuel. He's accommodating Samuel when he could just bring the hammer down and say, trust me, I'm God. It's fine. Stop questioning me. I'm going to get you to Jesse's house. And he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he gives him something. He gets him there safe. We should rejoice in the patience of God towards Samuel. And my hope is that each of us would reflect upon the patience of God that he shows to us each and every day, the kindness that he shows to us all the time that we're so used to we don't even thank him for it anymore. <clears throat> Second tonight, we see the vision of God 
We see how God looks. We see how God perceives. We see how God understands. And we see it especially in comparison to how we see and think and understand the world around us. Think about this. Think about what happens here. Um, Samuel arrives at the home of Jesse, and he brings nine of his sons out. One by one, they pass by Samuel. Now, I don't want to look at every single son that passes by Samuel, but just notice the first son and notice how Samuel reacts to the first son. Eliab comes forward. Now look how Samuel thinks and looks. He sees this guy, he sees Eliab, and he immediately thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? This guy has to be the guy. I'm very impressed. People are going to be okay with seeing this guy become king instead of Saul. All right, this is going to work. You know, he almost perks up. He thinks, this job was supposed to be hard, and here I am, first guy that comes across me, and he's already the king. This is great. That's how, that's how Samuel thinks. And then God says something. He wants to teach Samuel, even in his old age, he has things to learn. And he wants to teach Samuel something. And so what does he teach him? He teaches, teaches him this. Do not look on the height of his stature. Evidently, Eliab is a tall fellow. People in Israel, uh, historically at least, were not necessarily tall people. Uh, historically, they were on the shorter end of things. We don't know how tall uh, Eliab would have been. We don't exactly know how tall uh, Saul would have been. But we do know that these men are head and shoulders above everybody else, right? In chapter 9, the text told us that Saul was taller than any of the people. Now, here's Eliab, and he, he's close. Eliab measures up. This is going to be good. But the first thing God does after showing him Eliab is reproving him, right? He corrects Samuel. He says, stop getting hung up on looks. You Israelites and your surface level obsession with appearances. And then what happens? Well, Samuel looks at Abinadab and then he looks at Shammah. And then he looks at the other seven as well, and none of them are God's men. None of them are God's men. Now there is one other son. And why isn't he there with his other brothers? Well, Jesse says he's keeping the sheep. He's a good son. He's a, he's a dutiful son. Um, he is doing what needs to be done, but, but also his father doesn't seem to imagine that he needed to be there in the first place. This guy is not king material. And if he had thought that David needed to be there, then David would have been there. This is a man that knows how to run his farm. This is a man that knows how to run this place. And clearly, life on Jesse's farm has sort of ground to a halt while Samuel is there. But evidently, there are things about David that make him an unlikely choice at first glance. In verse 11, Jesse says that David is the youngest. That's the word in the text. Um, the word that Jesse uses here is, is the Hebrew word katan. It's the word katan. And what that means is it means smallest. In the Hebrew, it can mean small. It can mean most insignificant. It can mean thinnest, leanest, skinniest, and, and youngest. It can mean all these things. So it doesn't, mean Jesus, uh, it doesn't mean David is all of these things. 
it, it doesn't mean that he's, um, you know, Captain Rogers before he turns into Captain America, you know, <laughs> not necessarily, right? He is, he is not all of these things. He is not completely Catan, but he's some of these things. He's maybe the youngest. He's maybe the smallest. He may be the skinniest or the, or, you know, you could just rattle off any of these things. And that's Jesse's estimate of his son. This is how he describes his very own son. Now again, that doesn't mean he's the weird kid. Doesn't mean he's an ugly kid. The text clearly says that he's a fighter, that he's a warrior, that he's a tough guy. And that it says that he's handsome. All right. But he still lacks the thing that makes him obvious as a leader. And probably height is one of those things, especially at this point in his life. If he's the youngest, he's probably not the tallest. There's a Puritan writer named Thomas Adams, and Thomas Adam, Adams puts it this way. He says, Jesse could find nothing in David worthy of honor in relation to his brothers, but God found something in him that honored David before them all. David's father thought him fit to keep sheep and his brothers fit to rule over people. God thought David fit to rule and for his brothers to serve. Here was all the difference. Jesse saw things based on the outside. God by the inside. Jesse saw the composition of the body. God saw the disposition of the mind. Let's put it all together. Jesse says David is Catan, right? He's the youngest, he's the littlest. He's careful to bring all of his sons here except for David. Right? He, he doesn't seem to think to include him in the lineup. Pair that with the fact that Samuel thinks it must be Eliab based on his appearance. And then consider this, that before David can be presented to Samuel, Samuel has to change his mind about the kind of man he's really looking for. You start to see here that the lesson of Saul still hasn't really sunk in, right? It isn't the tall guy. It isn't the dark guy. It isn't the handsome guy that, that, that God wants. He's not looking for the whole package. This guy doesn't have to look like Mark Consuelos in order to be able to be a ruler of the people, right? If they have to follow their eyes, they're going to be misled just like with Saul. Why else would God specifically make the point that God sees these people differently than we see them? God is very clear. Do not look on his appearance. Do not look on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Why would God make this point if David was actually a big, strong, obvious leader? Was Instead, God would speak to Samuel and say, hey, the man I choose is going to be really obvious to you. You're going to go on this farm, you're going to walk in there, and you are going to see him right away. It's going to be easy. It's the easiest job you've ever had, Samuel. Instead, God doesn't do that. He says, Samuel, you won't see it when you look at him. You have to have the man that I choose. 
I will pick him. Now, how does God see? He says it right here. He says, God sees the heart. He knows people's thoughts. He knows people's motives. He weighs the reasons why we do what we do. Think about Jeremiah 4.14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? What is God saying? I can see your thoughts. You can't hide your thoughts from God. You can't hide what you're ruminating on and what your heart loves and delights in. You can't hide these things from Him. Luke 5.22 reminds us that Jesus perceived the thoughts of the people by divine revelation, what does he say? He says, why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question in your hearts? They're not saying it out loud, but they're saying it in their hearts, and Jesus knows. So God sees deep inside of each and every one of us. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. If you're a sinner, then this is a very sobering reality, right? What did you think about today? What did you imagine today? What did you think about other people today? What did you think about on other days? Were they good thoughts? Were they, were they pure thoughts? Did you pray for people? Did you think prideful thoughts about yourself? Did you think about how much you deserve things to be better in your life? God knows. He knows. You may have forgotten what you did yesterday. God hasn't forgotten. He saw it all. He has perfect memory, if you want to use the word memory, to describe a being who has no past or present or future. <laughs> he does know. He has not forgotten you may keep it all together. You may present a happy, good image for everyone else to see. But listen, God sees it all. And I know that's not pleasant to think about. I know that's not pleasant to think about at all. The question is this, though. If God knows and sees the heart, that knowledge, what do we do with that knowledge? Do we despair? Do we give up? Do we hide? The whole point of knowing that God sees the heart is this, it drives us to Christ. It drives us to Christ. It drives us away from believing that we can psychologize away our sin. Just because you have caused yourself to forget what you did, to quote-unquote forgive yourself, that doesn't mean you have forgiveness. That doesn't mean that God's forgotten. What does this do? It drives us to Jesus, and it drives us away from a psychological view of our sin. The problem is not that you remember your sin and that you need to forgive yourself. The problem is that God knows your sin better than you do, and you need a Savior. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but there is an application that I think is worth Considering it's an application that's worth worth making. I think if God cares more about our hearts than our appearance Shouldn't we as well? All right, maybe during quarantine right now you have sort of told yourself what I've told myself which is you can't stay in your sweatpants all day 
right? <laughs> You've got to go out. You have to dress. You have to, <clears throat> well, don't go out. Stay home. Um, but, you know, you tell yourself all the things that you really need to know. I need to get dressed today. I need to move forward as if I'm going out today. I need to be awake. I need to be alert. I will be less depressed if I get my clothing on. Maybe you're focused on how you look, and maybe you're focused on presenting a good image. Maybe you're getting on webcams. Maybe you're doing what I'm doing and talking to cameras like I am at this moment. Maybe you're doing a lot of that. You care about what you look like. Do you pay more attention to the state of your heart and the state of your soul than you pay to how you look? Or are you still hung up on the same things the Israelites are hung up on? How do I look? How does he look? How does she look? I can't follow that guy. He doesn't have a tie on. <laughs> I'm hung up on appearances. I can't stop thinking about the way people look. Here's the point. We should care about our soul. Because God cares about our soul. We should spend time beautifying our hearts and our souls by the word of God and the means of grace more than we spend on our looks, on our hair, on our makeup. I don't have any of those things, and it's easy for me to maybe pick on women because they do do those things. But the question is, do you focus on the soul? Do you focus on the heart? Do you focus on what's going on in here? That's what God wants for us. God doesn't look on appearances. He doesn't care if your shoes are trendy. He doesn't care if your dress was expensive or not. He doesn't care how valuable your purse was or where you got it from. But what he does care about is, what's going on in here? What's going on in your soul? Because as God says, and as he shows us tonight, this is how he sees us, right? He sees what's inside, and he cares about that above all else. Third tonight, we have the freedom of God. Freedom of God. Um, <clears throat> did you notice this? That Israel got what they wanted, and the result was Saul. Right? Their choice left them with a man of ambition, a towering, tall, handsome man who checked all the worldly marks, but who was a proud fool. Saul was Israel's king, Eliab evidently was Samuel's king, but David is God's king. Israel had their chance, and now Yahweh says, I have chosen David. He uses the word choose in the text. In fact, he uses the word choose a lot in the text. And the Hebrew word for, for his choice is ra'ah. He says, I ra'ah David. Now, ra'ah uh, doesn't just mean to select, it means to set, it means, or it means to see, it means to look, it means to understand or perceive or have, right? And so over and over again in this passage, God refers to himself as seeing David, looking at David, finding David, and yes, choosing David. And they all use the same word each time, ra'ah, 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 I ra'ah, David. He never talked about Saul that way. He never talked about Saul that way. Saul was Israel's choice. Israel ra'ad Saul. Not God. 
They were, they, he was their choice. And he knew it. How did he know? Because he knows the heart. He knew just what they wanted. And he gave them just what they wanted. Saul is what it looks like when Israel has the freedom to pick their king. Now, what does it look like when God exercises his choice and his freedom? Well, it looks like David, who we know ends up being a great king for Israel. Not a flawless king, not a sinless king, but a great king. In fact, David ends up being the king that Israel still thinks of and still yearns for even hundreds of years later. In fact, a thousand years after David, people are still waiting for the kingdom of David to be restored, for the throne of David to be restored. That's what they want more than anything else. What does that mean? It means David is the glory days that they want to get back to again. Think about that. Saul is the chapter they'd rather forget, and David is what they want to get back to. And that was God's choice. It speaks to the credibility of God, of his love for Israel, that he would give them a good king that they still want and they still yearn for long after the fact. You know, that's the sort of glory that comes when God does things his way instead of our way. God's freedom means that grace gets poured out. If we were left to ourselves, we would be in a sad state indeed. And God can do this any way he pleases. He can accomplish it any way that he wants. The freedom of God means that he can use anything to accomplish his purpose and in a way that maximizes the credit that comes his way. What, is, what does Paul tell us about how God works and how God labors? God, Paul tells us God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is stripping us of the right to boast. He's stealing from us anything that we might use to point to ourselves and say, well, I did that part over there. And God says, it's all of me. You didn't build any of this. See, David's ministry is just another reminder that lifts our eyes higher than just David. Consider this. David was anointed king, but there was a long road between David's anointing and David's enthronement. Think about this. It would be 10 years of suffering and persecution and exile after David was anointed. So David's anointed, and then you would think, wow, what a high point. This is fantastic. What a glorious moment. Well, the rest of the narrative for the next 10 years is very depressing. It's very hard. There's tremendous suffering and pain between the anointing and what ends up happening. This reminds us of Jesus, because this is what Martin Luther said, and he says it better than I ever could. He says, for Christ himself entered into his glory only by first descending into hell, using the language of the Apostles' Creed. When he is about to reign, he is crucified. When he is to be glorified, he is spit on. For he must suffer first and then at length be glorified. Even in this moment of the text, God is drawing our eyes to Jesus. 
Before David can ascend to his throne, first he must suffer. Before Christ could ascend into his glory, first he had to come and he had to suffer as well. David is a picture of Jesus here. Understand this. David, not in this moment, but in his life between now and his rising to be the king. David is a picture of Jesus. Why? Jesus suffers all the way, and there is no glory without a cross. David is a picture of Jesus given to us freely by God's grace. He didn't have to give Israel David, and God didn't have to give us Jesus. There was no obligation. He did it because he loves us, not because we deserve it. The freedom of God means grace for us. So let's revel in the freedom of God. And wonder what is he doing right now? It seems, Lord, like everywhere we turn in the scriptures, we are reminded of the way that your son gave all that he had in order to rescue us. And we're reminded of your freedom, Lord. You could have left us in our helpless state. You could have abandoned us and left us in our sin. And yet you chose of your own free grace to show kindness where it wasn't owed. To have your son march to the cross to suffer in our place and to lay his life down to save us. Help us to remember that you see the heart and to remember the beauty of Christ's heart. Help us to be repentant and confessing people who take shelter in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray tonight.